my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello! Welcome back to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your beloved host, Josh Baker, covers six new-to-me horror movies, then talks about Buffy for the seventh topic. This episode, I'll cover big reptiles, pleasurable pains, and undead clowns. Hop aboard and let's float down this river of content together. No, we are not inviting John Foyt. Number 1, Anaconda, 1997, directed by Luis Yosa. A documentary crew are on a boat going down a river in the Amazon when they run into John Voight, whose boat broke down. They let him on board. John Voight sabotages the crew and ends up as the de facto captain. His snake-hunting motives come to light, so the crew tries to take him out. A bunch of people die throughout this ordeal. Most are killed by a female anaconda, and John Voight kills someone himself. The female anaconda is taken down. The remaining crew members, JLo and Ice Cube, end up having to deal with the male anaconda that eats and throws up John Voight. Ice Cube blows up the anaconda, but ends up having to hit the flaming snake one last time with an axe to kill it. John Voight and anacondas are the killers. I'm not even going to bother with character names because it's impossible to separate these people from their real-life counterparts. If I was going to call John Voight anything besides his actual name, I'd call him Tony Montana because he does a terrible Scarface impression throughout the entire movie. Whose idea was that? His normal voice would have been fine. We don't need this say hello to my big anaconda friend garbage. He doesn't actually say that, but he may as well have. I don't think anyone in charge of how the anacondas in this movie look have actually seen an anaconda. I don't even think anyone researched anything besides they squeeze and eat things. I guess I'm an idiot for thinking a movie called Anaconda would decently represent the snake. If anacondas were similar to what is shown in this movie, everyone would have to live in bunkers. Don't go outside, Jerry. Those dang anacondas are flying around and tail whipping people to the ground. Anacondas basically lunge at whatever they want to destroy, sink their razor-sharp teeth into the target's flesh, then spin to win, thus binding the unlucky victim. Actual anacondas are way scarier than the practical CGI abominations portrayed in the movie. I do appreciate the attempt at practical snakes, but neither the practical or CGI snakes work at all. All the acting is terrible, as anyone could have guessed, Danny Trejo is in this and dies in the first couple minutes, and doesn't sound like himself at all. I couldn't find proof that his character was dubbed over by someone else, but it sounds like it. Everyone's favorite Hunter character from Jumanji is in this. His name is Jonathan Hyde, and I love the goofy characters he portrays. Owen Wilson is in this movie, like everyone else. I don't know why they decided to chuck so many names into this. I'm not a fan of Owen Wilson at all, 
Let's just leave it at that. Pet warning, multiple animals die. A jaguar gets a deadly hug from an anaconda. John Voight shoots a monkey, which isn't cool. It does lead to a scene where an anaconda spits the dead monkey at Jumanji guy, which is hilarious. The anacondas get shot and axed in the heads. I know these aren't really pets, but any animal can be a pet if you love it enough. Besides killing the defenseless monkey, John Voight straight up murders a female crew member. Yeah, they make him some type of crazy ninja who can snap someone's neck with his legs. Yeah, old ass John Voight pops up and puts a girl in a headlock with his legs. It's definitely stupid. I don't know how I never watched this movie since I feel like all my friends saw it when I was growing up. Anaconda is an awful movie, but a fun time. Who doesn't want to watch well-known celebrities face a bunch of slithery shenanigans while floating down the Amazon River? If I didn't sell you yet, the anacondas make chomping sounds when they bite people. You can thank Frank Welker for that. Who's he? The guy that voiced the anacondas in the movie, duh. Sad fact, the CGI for the anacondas cost $100,000 a second, money poorly spent. Anacondas spawned three sequels and a crossover with Lake Placid. I'll be covering the original Lake Placid in a bit, but after my stint in Pumpkinhead Purgatory, I will never be purposefully watching any more movies made for TV by sci-fi. They were a ton of fun when I was a stupid idiot child, but hot damn are those movies soul-sucking to watch nowadays. If I'm wrong, and there are some dope sci-fi movies I need to check out for some reason, let me know. Number 2, Naked Blood, 1996, directed by Hisayasu Sato. A boy named Eiji creates a new painkiller that turns pain into pleasure, which he calls My Son. His mom is testing a new contraceptive. Eiji puts his new painkiller into the contraceptive that's being administered to three women. Eiji has a special interest in one of the girls, Rika. They have a strange relationship. The other two girls end up dead after harming themselves in various ways. It's revealed that the girls didn't die because of their self-inflicted wounds. Rika actually killed them and cut open Eiji's mom's stomach, which leads to his dad, who disappeared allegedly after finding out the secret to eternal life, popping up again, crawling into his wife's stomach, and them both disappearing. Eiji takes the remainder of my son and him and Rika do it, which ends in her killing him. After some time has passed, Rika is shown with a son named after Eiji. She rides a motorcycle around with the goal of spreading my son everywhere. Rika is the killer. Are you confused? You should be. The movie doesn't really make any sense. I mean, the whole plot with the painkiller being too effective makes some sense, but Rika turning into a killer doesn't. They try to explain that bad feelings are turned into good feelings by my son, so instead of her feeling bad about killing, she ends up enjoying it. It's stupid. Her whole character is a weird mess. She's an insomniac that can't sleep, so instead of sleeping like a normal person, she basically mind links with a cactus that she's in love with. Like I said, you should be confused. It doesn't make sense. Naked Blood is a remake of Sato's 1987 film, Genuine Rape. Yeah. Sato is known mostly for his pink films, or Pinku Ega, which is basically an erotic film genre that originated in Japan. He is known as one of the four heavenly kings of pink. Dude seems to be a total sleaze, but hey, 
He was one of the first major filmmakers in the pink genre to feature gay relations in his films and was awarded the grand prize at the Berlin Gay and Lesbian Festival in 1993, which makes it sound like he was at least a little progressive when he wasn't making shocking films that Wikipedia says allegedly tackle serious subjects like obsession, alienation, perversion, and voyeurism. I think he mostly just exploited these subjects based solely on my viewing of Naked Blood, which despite the name and Sato's reputation, only has one brief sex scene at the end. You can just take a brief glance at the names of his movies and see that he's mainly making shocking exploitation films, which don't impress me in the least. It's easy to disgust, shock, and offend. What's hard is to truly horrify an audience. Sato tries to do this in Naked Blood, but due to the lack of an enthralling story, the movie just devolves into gore for the sake of gore. At least in movies like Hostel, there is the lingering thought that there actually are rich people out there torturing unfortunate souls for fun. In Naked Blood, people are just doing heinous things to themselves due to being slipped a ridiculous painkiller. The main attempt at disturbing the viewer are the actions of a character who says her greatest love is food. Girl loves food, so when pain becomes pleasure, she's obviously going to start eating herself. She starts off by frying her fingers and breaking off a piece of that deep-fried hand. Things are about to get pretty gross. If you're squeamish, think about skipping ahead about a minute because the self-cannibalism is just getting started. Since crispy human fingers aren't nearly enough when it comes to shock factor, things escalate quickly to implied labia eating. Yeah. Like I said, shock for shock's sake. We move from that hidden action to a very front and center nipple removal and consumption. I want to say the worst part about this particular showing is the fact that the girl uses a butter knife. If I, for some reason, end up cutting off parts of my own body, you better believe I'm using the sharpest knife I can find. I guess it would be more painful to use a dull knife, which makes sense given the circumstances. To top everything off, the girl stabs a fork into her eye. The eye is then pulled from its socket and consumed. You'd think that this would be incredibly disturbing. It technically is, but honestly, this kind of stuff that's over the top and absolutely unbelievable is so ridiculous that it doesn't affect me nearly as much as something like the most yeesh-inducing scene I've talked about on this podcast from Gerald's Game. I'm never going to eat myself due to my pain being turned into pleasure, but could end up in a situation where I have to get my hand out of handcuffs at all costs. There is another girl who pierces herself all over with various objects, but the main shock factor comes from the self-tasting. To give credit where credit is due, the gore effects in this are practical and very well done for 1996. The effects work is truly fantastic. That doesn't make Naked Blood worth watching. If for some reason you want to see practical gore that's only included for shock factor and doesn't have a coherent story or decent acting surrounding it, check out Naked Blood. For everyone else, I recommend skipping this one. Number 3, Lake Placid, 1999, directed by Steve Miner. A paleontologist, marine fish and game officer, eccentric millionaire, and a sheriff walk into a bar. I mean, show up at a lake. Someone was eaten there. They find out that there's a giant crocodile in the lake. The crocodile kills a deputy and is friends with Betty White. 
The gang of randoms end up capturing the crocodile and blowing up another one that they didn't know about. Betty White is then shown feeding a bunch of baby crocodiles. The crocodiles are the killers. Lake Placid is basically Anaconda if it was a self-aware R-rated movie. I recommended Anaconda because it's bad good and I'm also recommending Lake Placid. Lake Placid is being recommended because of its charm. This movie knows it's ridiculous and takes full advantage of that fact. Let's start with the gore. A man is bitten, then torn in half by one of the giant crocodiles in the movie. His upper torso makes it back to the small boat where his sheriff friend is waiting for him. The half-man, still alive, is pulled onto the boat where he finally succumbs to his grievous wound since he's not a knight who wears dark clothing in a Monty Python film. This is practically the first thing that happens in the movie and instantly let me know I was in for a treat. The film is actually light on gore, but the half-man and another death involving an unfortunate soul having his head chomped off are superbly done and great. Bits and pieces of the men the crocodiles decided to throw up are also shown. The most disgusting of these body parts being one of the half-man's toes, which is found on shore being devoured by worms. That grossed me out way more than it probably should have. Pet warning, one crocodile is shot with bullets and tranquilizer darts, another is blown up by some crazy gun. Why is this a pet warning? Well, the crocodiles were kind of Betty White's pets. A cow and bear are also eaten by the crocs. There's also a moose's head and dead body shown. I don't think any of this will make you pet lovers sad. The moose head is snatched out of the water and promptly dropped by the sheriff. It ends up hitting Kelly, the paleontologist, who's played by Bridget Fonda. She's the niece of Jane Fonda. Later on in the movie, the deputy's decapitated head that was bitten off by a croc ends up being tossed her way out of fright, just like the moose head, which prompts Kelly to exasperatedly say, I keep getting hit with heads. It's actually funny. I really like the quippy writing in Lake Placid. Sure, the dialogue isn't realistic, but it's fun. All of the characters in the movie are great and well acted, given the campy nature of the film. I already talked about Bridget Fonda, who plays the paleontologist. Bill Pullman plays the marine fish and game officer. Oliver Platt plays the eccentric millionaire. And one of my favorite actors, Brendan Gleeson, plays the sheriff. All of the characters are interesting and memorable. It's great to see all the wacky interactions between them. Unfortunately, none of the actors do a terrible Tony Montana impression in Lake Placid. Sorry, I meant fortunately. Practical and CGI effects were used to create the crocs. The CGI is dated, but it works well enough. The giant animatronic croc is awesome and makes you forget about the brief instances of spotty CGI. In this movie, it's stated that crocodiles can't really see underwater. So if you are ever being attacked by one, diving underwater will help your chances of survival. This is hogwash, so I suggest staying away from the modern day dragons altogether. I highly recommend checking out Lake Placid if you're looking for a short creature feature that has a ton of charm. I've talked about the director Steve Miner a tiny bit in the past when I covered another film he directed called House. I forgot he directed House because I've removed most of that garbage movie from my mind. I'm glad I forgot because I might not have checked out Lake Placid if I had remembered. If you are feeling the big animal is the killer high, I also recommend checking out a movie called Grizzly from 1976. It's like Jaws on land. If the shark was a grizzly bear, and it was much lower budget, and stupid. Grizzly is a fun one. Number 4, All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, 2006, directed by Jonathan Levine. 
Mandy Lane and her friend Emmett go to a party. Emmett talks a drunk jock into trying to jump into a pool from a roof, which ends with the jock dying. Nine months later, Mandy isn't talking to Emmett. She goes to a ranch with some normies. Emmett shows up and starts killing people. Eventually, it's revealed that Mandy and him planned a murder-suicide. Mandy kills someone and then doesn't go through with the suicide. Emmett is killed by a ranch hand, who Mandy drives off with. Mandy Lane and Emmett are the killers. Why do they decide to initiate this murder-suicide plan? Who knows? Pretty much every male character in this movie talks about wanting to bang Mandy Lane, so I'm assuming she just wants to kill all the creeps, and Emmett is down to help because he's a sad boy who loves her. That's my assumption since Mandy Lane's motive is never clearly stated. It doesn't make sense that she wants to be part of the whole murder-suicide plan. This movie is bad. The entire plot makes no sense and everything is completely drawn out. Some of the kill executions are alright, but none of the kills are good enough to waste your time watching this in its entirety. The height of the gore is when a girl's mouth is split open by a shotgun barrel that's used as a makeshift chisel. This is done practically, but nowhere near amazing. The only other notable gore scene is when a dude gets his eyes slashed, but compared to movies like Unshen Andalusia, this eye slash in All the Boys Love Mandy Lane is cheap and not disturbing in the least. It's kind of comedic since Emmett, the one doing the slashing, is getting his ass kicked and somehow is able to pull out a large hunting knife and slash his attacker in the face, taking out both of his eyes before he reacts to anything that's happening. The highlight of my watch was when I finally remembered that the guy that plays the stoner character in the movie was the wheelchair-bound debater in an episode of Community. The acting in this movie is horrendous. There are multiple shots that are ruined by bad lighting. For some reason, there are parts where we get weird flashes during the action sequences. I'm assuming this is to hide poor execution. At one point in the movie, Emmett shoots fireworks at people. The CGI used for the fireworks must be stock samples from After Effects. Whatever was used doesn't even look like fireworks. This movie is garbage and not worth anyone's time. Mandy Lane getting pushed into a gooey pit littered with cow carcasses by whiny Emmett is a good metaphor for the film. As the viewer, you are Mandy Lane. Emmett is the movie, and the terrible cow pit symbolizes the lack of enjoyment you'll have once the movie gets started. There's a part where Emmett is going to shoot a dude. The dude is in a river. The dude dives to avoid being shot. Okay, that makes sense. Now all the dude has to do is swim down the river. Instead of doing the obvious, dude resurfaces at the same spot he originally dove and gets shot in the face. Why did he do that? Poor writing. A girl gave that same dude a handy in a car full of people. Discreetly, of course. She put a very crinkly map over his crotch first. You know, for ultimate stealth. I wish I had something interesting to tell you about this movie, but there just isn't anything worth mentioning. The ranch it was filmed at belongs to Hilary Duff's family and might be haunted by a little girl that died in an upstairs bedroom. John Wilkes Booth also might have hung out there. The ranch is much more interesting than the movie. Do not watch All the Boys Love Mandy Lane unless you're looking to take notes on what not to do when making a movie. Number 5, Stitches, 2012, directed by Connor McMahon. A clown named Stitches performs at a kid named Tommy's birthday party. Stitches dies in a freak accident after being tormented by the kids. 
Six years later, Tommy has another birthday party, and Stitches comes back to life to take his revenge. Stitches kills a bunch of the original kids. Three of the original birthday gang, including Tommy, live after defeating Stitches by destroying an egg that Stitches had to paint with his face paint design when he became a clown. Stitches is the killer. The kids are somewhat responsible for Stitches' death, but when it all comes down to it, it's a freak accident. If anyone is to blame for the death, it's Tommy's careless mother, who put a knife blade up in the dishwasher. Come on, Tom's mom. It's like you were asking for that clown to fall face first onto that. If you are able to, I'd like you to take a moment and look up the cover for Stitches. I'll assume you're pulling it up now on your phone or computer. Alright, yeah, look at that cover. Based on that cover, this movie must be complete trash, right? If I told you that Stitches, a movie with that god-awful cover, is actually an amazing horror comedy that I think any fan of horror movies and practical gore must see, would you believe me? I mean, I completely understand your hesitance. Look at that cover. I mean, who in their right mind would decide on that cover if the movie is actually good? Well, folks, Stitches is an incredible horror comedy. I have been overlooking this film for years because of that abysmal cover. For years I have deprived myself of an amazing viewing experience. I know, I know, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I feel with horror movies, if the cover is terrible, 99.9% .9 of the time the movie is too. Hell, sometimes the only good thing about a horror movie is the cover, so when a horror movie has a bad cover, I just expect the film is truly terrible. Stitches has some of the best death scenes I have ever seen. All of the amazing deaths include fantastic practical effects. We're talking a head being blown up and popped like a balloon, genitals being hilariously pulled off, balls and all, an umbrella impaling a head, a disembowelment balloon animal, an arm ripped off followed by a decapitation by clown shoe kick. This movie has it all. During all the death scenes, we get this amazing slowed-down gore front and center. The craftsmanship of the effects is astounding. The gore is ridiculous and fake in the best possible way. This movie has blood for days. Something that a ton of comedies are lacking these days is good visual comedy, and Stitches is packed full with it. The acting is incredibly hammy, and Ross Noble is perfect as Stitches. It's a joy to watch him vengefully kill these teens, while spouting off terrible, yet hilarious one-liners. This movie is basically a spiritual sequel to the Nightmare on Elm Street series, given the ridiculous nature of the kills and tongue-in-cheekness of our killer. Tommy even takes hypnosil pills for his anxiety, which exists in the Elm Street universe. Pet warning, Stitches kills the stuffing out of a cat. It's horrible and upsetting. Wait, I mean it's stupid and hilarious. The cat is obviously a stuffed animal, and he slams it around to kill all of its lives because, as we all know, cats can have up to nine lives. For some reason, Stitches decides to kill it ten times. I guess it's better to be safe than sorry when murdering a stuffed cat. We don't want an adorable version of Pet Cemetery on our hands. Stitches is an incredible horror comedy with beautifully crafted practical death scenes. Definitely check this one out. It'll make everybody happy. Well, whore fans at least. Number 6, The Abominable Dr. Fibes, 1971, directed by Robert Fuest. Dr. Fibes is assumed dead after a car crash. 
He survived, but doctors weren't able to save his wife. Dr. Fives blames the doctors for his wife's death and wants revenge. Dr. Fives and his assistant start murdering all the doctors. Dr. Fives gets his revenge and commits suicide to join his wife. Dr. Fives and his assistant are the killers. Vincent Price plays Dr. Fives, but I wouldn't call this a Vincent Price movie. After the car crash, Dr. Fives is horribly disfigured and unable to talk naturally. He ends up using his knowledge of sound to replicate his voice, but because of this, there is not a lot of talking from Vincent Price for a majority of the movie. We don't even hear his voice in the first 30 minutes. If you have never seen a Vincent Price movie and are interested in watching his films, this is a terrible starting point due to the lack of Price talking. Other Price movies that I've covered are insanely fun and carried by his charisma and banter. Dr. Fives is still fun, even though it doesn't throw Vincent Price front and center at his full power. It almost feels like it's two movies mashed together. One movie consists of a police investigation into the mysterious body count left by Dr. Fives, and the other movie revolves around the wacky going-ons in Dr. Fives' lair. The set design for the lair is incredibly surreal and vibrant. The movie starts off with a concert from Dr. Fives, who plays an organ with his robot bandmates, Dr. Fives' clockwork wizards. The robots are obviously guys wearing creepy masks that completely cover their heads. Speaking of creepy masks, Dr. Fives kills one of his victims by providing him with a full head frog mask that ends up crushing the unlucky wearer's head at a masquerade party. Always bring your own mask when going to a masquerade party. How you could forget to bring one is beyond me. The crazy kills inspired by the ten plagues of Egypt are the main points of enjoyment in the film. The first kill that is shown, Dr. Fives sneaks a ton of bats into one of the doctor's rooms. Now, this might sound scary in theory, but what's shown on screen is actually adorable since the bats used are fruit bats, the cutest of all flying mammals. If I didn't instantly recognize the species, maybe it would have been a little scary. Dr. Fives' main method of killing is filling a space with a bunch of living things. Besides putting bats in a bedroom, he also fills an airplane with rats and coerces a swarm of locusts through a hole in a hospital room ceiling. All of these kills are rather silly, with the most ridiculous being the locust kill. When the victim of that kill is shown, the locusts have eaten all of her flesh, leaving only her hair and skeleton. It's great. Dr. Fives keeps track of who he's killed in a very interesting manner. Instead of crossing out names on a handwritten list like some amateur, Dr. Fives melts a wax bust of the victim. Yes, he has created a bust of every potential victim. Before Dr. Fives starts draining all the blood from one of his victims, we see the victim watch a movie that has a girl playing with a boa constrictor. The soon-to-be victim seems to be getting off on this snake action, which makes the whole scene super weird and humorous. I don't think Dr. Fives is a great movie, it's kind of all over the place. I personally enjoyed my watch though. The movie has had an impact on cinema. Dr. Fives kidnaps the head surgeon's son, puts a key by the kid's heart, and tells the surgeon that he will need to remove the key that will unlock the device keeping his son in place within six minutes, or the boy will get a face full of acid. Does that sound familiar? Oh yeah, that sounds like something Jigsaw does 30 years later. Don't watch Dr. Fives if you're looking for an introductory Vincent Price movie. Watch it if you want to see a unique film that's ideas are still being used in film today.
Number seven, Buffy Babble. First off, I want to apologize for forgetting the pet warning for the third season. Buffy finds the dead body of a cat in her basement. My bad. I have seen up to season five, and Xander is finally bearable. All it took was for him and Anya, an ex-vengeance demon, to become a couple. Now that he has her, he's no longer being the biggest creep ever. Since my last spewing of words, the mayor turned into a giant demon worm during Buffy's graduation. Don't worry though, he was kited into the high school and promptly blown up. Buffy almost killed Faith, but just ended up putting her in a coma for a little bit, so it's all good. I miss the mayor. He was a great villain. Season 4 does not have a great villain. Before I jump into more thoughts, let me try to list the killers. Faith, a demon dog, the mayor, vampires, demons, werewolves, a Native American spirit, the gentleman, and an amalgam of demons and man named Adam are the killers. Huh, I must be missing some, or maybe there were less confirmed deaths. Buffy gets a new boyfriend named Riley, who is a soldier boy for a military organization called The Initiative. The Initiative is super boring and unfortunately a huge part of season 4. Luckily, the initiative is disbanded at the end of the season. Riley is lame, and Buffy does get engaged to Spike, but unfortunately the engagement doesn't last. How do they end up together? Well, you see, Willow casts a super powerful spell, which basically allows her to make things happen. She does this mostly by accident through sarcasm. When Willow finally realizes that she is basically a god, she reverses the spell. I'm not sure why she does this when she could probably easily stop all the evil herself. The show must go on, so OP Willow has to get hit with the nerf bat, I guess. A group of demons even asked her if she wanted to become a demon. She turns them down, but the demons are cool about it. They give her a talisman to use if she changes her mind. Willow and Oz break up after Oz uses his sexy werewolf body to keep another werewolf named Veruca from going out hunting during a full moon. He doesn't remember doing any kinky werewolf banging. But this leads to a pseudo breakup and Willow getting a girlfriend named Tara. Sad fact, they weren't allowed to show Willow and Tara kiss on TV back when Buffy aired, so instead they have them do a sexy spell. They're both witches. Here are the best episodes since last time. The Halloween episode for season 4 is called Fear Itself. A frat house basically comes alive and starts scaring everyone. It's a really cool episode that has a bunch of spooky stuff. I'm a sucker for creepy labyrinth houses. Something Blue is the name of the episode where Willow becomes an all-powerful deity. It's hilarious because she basically turns Spike and Buffy into a couple for an entire episode. I forgot to mention that Spike somewhat becomes a member of the gang after being captured by the Initiative. He escapes, but before he does, they put a chip in his head, which makes him unable to attack humans. He's still a rascal, but somewhat friendly once he's docile Spike. Him and Giles watch an entire soap opera together. The best episode of the entire series so far is titled Superstar. It's about Jonathan, the best character. In Superstar, Jonathan's front and center as an all-around badass due to some magic shenanigans. I like seeing this Jonathan since the last time we really get quality Jonathan time is in an episode where Buffy can hear what everyone's thinking. She hears someone say they're going to kill people and tracks down Jonathan. Silly Buffy, Jonathan was just going to kill himself. The lunch lady wants to kill everyone. Yeah, it's really sad. Jonathan, you are loved. Some other thoughts, we get a lot of feels stemming from Willow's relationships. I'm much more invested in Willow's romantic life than Buffy's, since Willow's actually feels real. 
When Buffy has to kill Angel to save the world, I'm not affected at all. But when Oz leaves Willow to figure out how to handle his wolf side, I'm hit hard with the feels. One last thing, Buffy has a teenage little sister named Dawn now. Yeah, I'm not sure where this random character ad out of nowhere is going, but Dawn is probably going to end up literally being Satan. We come to the end of episode 25. I can't believe I've put out this many episodes. Don't worry, I'm still going strong and will continue to bring all sorts of horror movies to your ears. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting this on their website, allowing it to possess your favorite podcast apps. I'll be back with some more nonsense on August 26th. Seriously, check out Stitches. It's great. Also, don't ever trust John Voight. He's always up to no good.